Good day. Um, this is Dan Martin from Next Gen Waterfronts on the American Shoreline Podcast Network, ASPN. Uh, today I have with me Paul Labowitz. Paul is the superintendent of one of the newest uh, of our national parks, Indiana Dunes National Park. Indiana Dunes National Park is at the southern end of Lake Michigan. Um, in the state of Indiana, and it's a beautiful park, and I'm going to ask Paul to describe it in a minute. It is uh, very accessible to the Chicago metropolitan area. I think it probably has like 15 million people within a, an hour and a half's drive of it or something like that, just an outrageous number of Midwesterners. Uh, so we all go out there and we're mid Midwestern nice to each other. Um, and uh, it is also very close to uh, Interstate 80, the uh, Indiana Toll Road, and so it has uh, a lot of uh, a lot of good access compared to so many of our national parks uh, that for some reason are out in the middle of nowhere. I'm not sure why. Anyhow, uh, Paul, do you want to take a minute uh, to introduce yourself and to, uh, to maybe uh, uh, tell us a little bit about the park? Because it's sure. really unusual. It doesn't have a single entrance. It has so many points of access, things like that. I don't know why you even need me on the program. You're 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 doing the speech I would give. I I will just change my voice a little bit. I'll get a little actuated here on it. No, 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 no problem. So no, thanks, Dan. Good to be here. This is really uh, cool. I appreciate uh, the chat time. So Indiana Dunes National Park has been around for fifty some years. Has been talked about for over a century as a national park, and it turns out it's fifteen thousand acres today that represent uh, some of the most ecologically diverse places in North America, mostly because of the biodiversity of our plant life here. And um, that's it's interesting insofar as the location that you referred to, Dan, is that it's not in the middle of nowhere. It's actually a place where if you're on the beaches of Lake Michigan, you can look over and you can see the skyline of Chicago. And then you turn your, turn your back to the city and you look at um, beaches and dunes and forested dunes and uh, this just spectacular collection of plants that range from prickly pear cactus from the southwest to bearberry, which is a plant that's found in the Arctic. And they're growing side by side in places here. And so, you know, Indiana is the crossroads of America and Indiana dunes is the crossroads of several different ecotones from the the uh, the Arctic tundra to the Midwest prairies to the eastern deciduous forests. So pretty spectacular place. Uh, I've been here six years and I really love being uh, a Hoosier. Now, now it just it just became a park what a, or officially its name was changed from Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore to National Park what a year ago? Uh, it was a year ago in February, yeah, um, Fe uh, February fifteenth, two thousand nineteen, and the name change was from Indiana Dunes National Lakeshore to Indiana Dunes National Park. And and I think you and I talked about uh, five six months ago, and one of the things that you told us at that time was how much of a bump in visitation that yielded. It was it was significant, and it was actually making a, an impact on the local economy. Yeah, the um, we, we as you mentioned, we have a lot of different ways to enter the park, so we don't have a, a an exact count. But um, our visitor center visitation literally doubled from the year before, from about seventy thousand to about one hundred and eighty thousand, actually over double. 
and uh, people from all 50 states and countries from all over the world. And a lot of them were stopping because they had heard the name had changed and they wanted to get a passport stamp in our visitor center and they wanted to see Indiana Dunes National Park. And um, the local community is very jazzed about the name change, sort of put us on the map. And we're very quick to tell people that the only thing that changed was the name. And the, the real impact of that, besides a lot more visitors, is cheaper signs because of less letters to print. Yeah. I, I, I think there's also one other or two other interesting characteristics about, um, about the park that, <clears throat> excuse me, are, are good to bring up. One is that a long time ago when the state of Indiana was planning, well, what are we going to do with our Lake Michigan lakefront? The plan was to have kind of an industrial lakefront from the Illinois border clear over to the Michigan border. I'm not sure how much that is. It may be 30, 40 miles long. And they got so far with U.S. Steel and Martin, now it's Arcelor Steel and some other mills and such along the lakefront. And, and then there was a remarkable uh, preservation movement, I think. I don't know who was involved. Uh, maybe you have a little history there, although I know your history is probably just better than mine because you've been there for six years. Um, is is that is is that kind of the way the Dunes Park evolved or happened? Was there like a saving program? And and how many how many linear miles of of waterfront did you end up getting in the park, roughly? Yeah, so that's a good question. So it's a, it's kind of a neat story. It's actually captured on a really nice documentary called Shifting Sands that came out a couple of years ago. It's on public television. Um, so I, I, I tell the story like this. There's 45 miles of Indiana coastline on Lake Michigan, and the National Park protects about 15 miles. And a lot of the remaining mileage is heavy industry, including some of it in the very center of the park, at the Arcelor Middle Steel Plant and the Port of Indiana. So, yeah, a century ago, Indiana Dunes was talked about as being one of the first national parks when the national park system was created by Stephen, by uh, I think President Woodrow Wilson, but the first director of the Park Service was Stephen Mather, and he was a Chicago businessman. So he was familiar with the Indiana Dunes. I often talk about Chicago as a great example of a city that has preserved their lakefront for public use and recreation. And all that pent-up demand to, in, to develop the lakefront in Chicago was just moved over to Indiana. So, you know, you could live in Chicago, this great city, enjoy this wonderful, easily accessible public lakefront, but you could build your factory in Indiana. And that's really the root of how it all happened. So the industry had a 50-year head start on the creation of the park. Mather was talking about a park in 1916. Uh, the park was not established until 1966. And there was a, a, a local group of folks who literally spent 50-plus years advocating for the protection of the remaining dunes. And sadly, we're, starting, we're losing some of those folks. They're passing away. Um, but they, they've been around and they've been at it for, uh, a century, believe it or not. Well, and the reason, <clears throat> the reason I wanted you to bring that story up is that we, we've all heard anyone who likes national parks or is interested in, in them has heard about John Muir and, and so many of the, the pioneers, the Sierra club and others that I think it's useful to sometimes realize that those kind of movements and those kind of attitudes 
uh, were led by people who are behind um, parks in the Midwest or in the Southeast or in other parts of the country too, that it isn't just pure happenstance that we have the national parks, that a lot of the national parks were uh, promoted and were, you know, um, advocated. Uh, and that there, there was a whole, I can't say one generation because it stretched over several generations, but there were several generations that got us where we are today. Now, every park I've ever been to or worked at has got that same story where there was a, a, a small group of local advocates whose voices rose above and made big things happen. Here, it was Dorothy Buell. It was Herb and Charlotte Reed. It was Mark Rushkin. It was uh, Lee Botts. Uh, and a variety of other folks. And, you know, um, it, it's amazing commitment to doing good things in your community, often somewhat unsung. And then Senator Paul Douglas from Illinois was actually the legislative sponsor of the bill. And it's very unusual for a, a park to be created in one state through the actions of a legislator in another state. Yeah, and, and I think that's partially because uh, <clears throat> even though even though uh, all of us who live in the metropolitan or greater Chicago area don't recognize it, um, so much of Northwest Indiana uh, uh, is really is really one and the same as the metropolitan Chicago area that we all are uh, kind of inhabiting the same economic system, the same. And and you sort of touched on this when you said they would recreate over there or they would work in Indiana. You know, they're all part of the same uh, system, and, and we don't really um, acknowledge that politically as, as often as, as Douglas did that one time. Um, so it's kind of kind of a cool story. Now, there's a, there's a timeliness to our conversation uh, that I wanted to get, get on to, and that is um, it, the park is closed, I think, right now, um, along with all the other national parks. So not technically true. So we are open. Just ah, a lot of our okay. facilities are closed. So our restrooms are closed. Our visitor center, our, our Douglas Environmental Education Center, the Dunes Learning Center is closed. But the landscapes and the parking lots are open. Uh, and what we found is that people who are um, sheltering in place, staying at home, find great comfort in having a, a place like this to come to, to hike and sit on the beach, hopefully while practicing all the public health recommendations. And um, we found that um, with some few exceptions that most of our visitors during this current crisis have been pretty respectful of the park. That's really cool. I hadn't realized that, uh, you know, and I'm only, I don't know, 20, 25 miles from you. Uh, so it, it has been open in, 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 a, in a manner of speaking. Uh, um, yeah, and that's, that's, uh, that's, that's not at all been discussed in, um, in Chicago media. So I would guess your numbers are down, but then, this might not be your peak time of the year anyhow, uh, although I bet springtime is beautiful. So I will say this. Uh, last weekend, it, uh, it, we had crowds that would rival the 4th of July weekend. It actually became problematic because because we have, you know, a skeletal staff. Our bathrooms are closed and there's obvious problems there. And our trash cans were overflowing. Uh, our custodial folks had to come in yesterday, take care of business. And um, we had literally closed a couple parking lots and a beach at Porter Beach because people were not behaving well and the traffic congestion was impacting local residents. So we're a little nervous about as the weather warms up, 
and we're still phasing back into you know reopening some of these facilities. Uh, will the will that timing coincide with each other in the right way? And our worry is much like you see about California beaches. We have a lot of beach here, even though the lake is high and some of the beaches are fairly narrow. People tend to congregate on the beach, and we really like them to understand that they need to to practice social distancing and wear masks when they're when they're mixing and mingling with other people for the foreseeable future. I, I had a conversation with a with a colleague on ASPN, Tyler and and Peter, uh, uh, back on Friday, and we were talking about the California beaches and how um, kind of unruly they were that people seemed to get the notion of social distancing when they were in a grocery store but when it came to a beach it was like we're we all suddenly become 12 years old again and we start to play and we forget how we're supposed to act or something like that is 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 you know and, and i guess some beaches in california tried to tried to implement that keep it moving kind of idea that you couldn't plop down the cooler and uh and the beach blanket um uh, uh, now I would point out that, that it was 35 degrees here yesterday. So, uh, so I'm not sure that I would go plop down a blanket and a cooler on a beach uh, in Indiana dunes, uh, these days, but, uh, but some of the days, like over the weekend, you mentioned, uh, the weather was terrific. Um, yeah, and, and I, again, as I mentioned, I think earlier, it doesn't matter. People are so pent up and closed in right now that 45 degrees and if the sun's out, they're going to go down to the beach. Um, and so that's what we're finding is, and of course, this is the Midwest. So I lived in Minnesota and when it got to be above zero, it was. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I know that culture. That's great. Well, it, it, you know, if you have a warm day in January, uh, the Chicago lakefront is clogged with runners and walkers. I mean, you know, carpe diem, I mean, seize the, seize the day. No, and that's what I like about the Midwest is that, you know, you, you know especially in the Great Lakes where the sun is a, is a stranger in the wintertime. Um when you get a nice day, which means the sun is out, it doesn't matter how cold it is, you can dress for the weather, but there's just something about being out in nature on a sunny day in late winter, early spring that brings a smile to your face. And it's, it's good for you. It's, it is very good for you. You, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting point in general because I think people have a sense that um, people in cold climates, particularly along along shorelines like we are, uh, you know, the coast of the Great Lakes, um, uh, that a lot of people sort of expect that we just, you know, hunker down for the mo- winter months. And and I think different areas have different cultures. You mentioned Minnesota. Uh, and, and up in Minnesota, I, I believe the local culture is, hey, get out there and embrace the winter. It doesn't matter how cold it is. Dress, as you say, dress right and go have a good time. No such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. Yeah, I, I, I remember there was that phrase. Um, now, what's going on now? I was actually expecting that a, a lot of listeners would have seen on the, uh, on the various um, uh, loops on the on the web all these animals taking over towns. You know, the goats taking over the town in Wales, or uh, or the uh, uh, the mountain lion lounging in, in a tree over a over a house in Boulder, Colorado, or you know the uh, the monkeys anywhere in India. Uh, and, and so many of these things, um, has, has with, you're still getting some degree and apparently some heavy degree of use, some, some, some days has nature changed at all that you've been able to observe? I, I'm guessing it's mostly anecdotal, but any, any things that you have seen different in, in nature, um, in, uh, in the park? 
Well, I was talking a little earlier. Two things about that. It is anecdotal. Some of it's personal experience. I have a little property, six acres, and I've noticed that the bird life um, is a whole lot more tolerant of uh, my presence than normal. Um, water birds and songbirds. We're, we're just seeing not just a variety, but uh, frequency is increased immensely. In the park, the same anecdotes occur with people say that there just seems to be more birds. But I think what it is, is that it's a lot quieter. And literally someone said that they think the sky is bluer because of the reduced emissions from the industry. And um, we don't, you know, we don't have the charismatic, gigantic mammal, the elk, the, the grizzly bears, the wolves here. But uh, my guess is that nature responded very quickly to this um, pause in human activity. And I think the best analogy I would give people is watch that movie, uh, I Am Legend, with uh, Will Smith and the pandemic that hit New York City. Um, if, if we slowed down enough, yeah, if we slowed, if, if we took another three months and really laid off leaving our homes, there will be uh, tree seedlings growing out of the cracks of roads, I guarantee you. So, so this is really kind of, um, of, a, of an interesting moment for, uh, for Mother Nature um, the world over right now, whether it is plant life. I hadn't even thought about the idea of, of parking lots gradually being taken over, you know, where we'd uh, disappear from the scene for some reason, uh, and, and animals becoming a lot more opportunistic and just going where the food was. Um, and uh, uh, I, I actually sort of, you know, wonder if there's a way to even preserve some of this new natural, um, uh, this new natural habitat that we're in, uh, you know, and, and, and I guess it also shows the, the, the flexibility or vulnerability of habitat where we can easily do habitat destruction as we have, you know, world over. But, uh, but this is kind of the reverse of that. And it's kind of an interesting thing to see the tape tape kind of rewound. It's a it's a little humbling to realize that, and and, and the whole COVID nineteen is a reminder that we are a population of animals that's subject to regulation by other organisms. Um, population ecologists would call a virus like this a population regulating mechanism, and. Uh, not to kid ourselves, that we are subject to the forces of nature as sophisticated as we think we are as a species. So this is a pretty good reminder. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's analogous to a forest fire burn. Yeah. The fuel load's too high. Something happens to reduce the fuel load. Uh, you have too many uh, individuals of a particular species in a population, and typically something comes along to thin the herd a little bit. And that's exactly what we're seeing here. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. 
Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. If you were try to, if you were to try to capture some of um, nature's expanded stage show now, uh, um, would it be a would it, would there be a way to do that in a way? Because, you know, it's our, our lack of presence that's allowing it to happen. Uh, so I almost wonder if, um, you know, I, I know that there are national parks and beautiful areas where they have uh, live cams where you can, you know, watch the passage of time and the passage of nature and all sorts of cameras that are triggered when a critter walks by so that you can, you know, see the, the, the greatest hits of animal movement in an area. Um, is is there uh, is there any thought to maybe putting a net or maybe you already have it of, of cameras uh, throughout Indiana Dunes so that uh, so that we all can enjoy that from our desktops as well as as uh, by going out there? Is there a way to bring it to our home? So it's a it's a great idea. We we talk about it. We've been talking about that for years. Just even having a a, a lake cam where you could just look and see what the lake looks like right now, and and believe it or not, is in the shadow of Chicago are our bandwidth and connectivity along the lake is actually pretty bad <laughs> because of um, there's just not a whole lot of service on that narrow strip on the coast. And so we're, we have technological obstacles to doing that. So we have not done it. That, that, that would be, and, and some of that is when you say technological opposite obstacles, it's, you know, kind of above our pay grade to address that. But, uh, uh, <clears throat> but that's a really interesting, interesting situation because I tend to think of the bottom of Lake Michigan, bottom that is, you know, the southern end of it, uh, you know, all of the roads, all of the railroads, all of the industry that moves east-west in America squeezes down under this narrow band that might be, I don't know, eight or ten miles from from the uh, southern edge of the lake to the southern edge of this area that I'm describing. And everything has to squeeze through, which is, which is you know, why... You know, you have some of the highest traffic counts on 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 those roads uh, in the country, and and uh, and such. But but despite that, all the train traffic and all of the all the auto traffic, uh, we don't have great broadband through there. That's really interesting. No, and it's that last mile, really. And you know, when you think about what is all around you, it's mostly wetland and dunes. So there, um, that that eight to ten miles. That's a different world south of the lake edge itself, but that last mile or two is pretty, pretty rugged, remote territory, with the exception of a few small roads and some small towns. And some of those towns don't want the connectivity that the people who go there 
are going there to get away from being connected. Yeah, and that's actually sort of an interesting comment on on us as a as a society too that we have these sort of wetland areas um, uh, so close to the so close to the metropolitan area of Chicago. You know, within within fifty miles, within twenty five or thirty miles, you have these places that are not densely populated, and part of it is that it's so hard to build there. Uh, yes, and 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 the people that live there, they like that. Yes, that's 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 real interest. So so when when time does come to reopen, as 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 I kind of think it probably must, um, is there going to be something different about how the park might be operated this time that you guys are toying with or thinking about, or or how will it reopen if it really never closed? Yeah, so we're we're it's basically a phased um, reopening of certain facilities and services but it will it will not be like a switch gets thrown and we're back open we are technically already open but what what do we need to have in place to offer public restrooms and how do i how do i equip my staff to be able to service those restrooms so that they're safe and the public is safe and what kind of behaviors do people need to exhibit when they use those facilities we haven't conquered that yet. I will tell you that we will not be doing the classic ranger-led program for 60 people who will hike a trail and stop every once in a while and hear a story about the park. Um, we're trying to figure out how we deliver education programs with the current health recommendations of social distancing and masks. Um, we do a lot of school group work here, so the Dunes Learning Center is struggling with what is their summer camp program going to look like if it, it even exists. And those those details have not been figured out yet. So we hope that, you know, the place is open and the restrooms and the trash cans are available, the beach is available, but how people use them and how we we recommend they use them, how they actually use them, and then what do we do if they don't follow those recommendations is still being figured out. Yeah, I, I, I think one one sort of twist that's happened is uh, so many of us uh, have been forced to or are now working from home, and we're all using Zoom, Google Hangouts, and all of the other uh, uh, Skype and other all the technological things. Um, uh, in, in fact, uh, in fact, I think you and I were on a meeting about three weeks ago, two weeks ago. Time passes, uh, and there were a whole bunch of people on that meeting. Um, and we we're all looking at each other's, uh, uh, you know, faces in this in this sort of a Hollywood Squares array. Um, I'm not sure who was Paul Lind, uh, and uh, but but that that whole that whole you know idea of digital connectivity. I wonder, um, you know, I had I have a I, I do a variety of types of consulting. One of them is with park systems, and, and we have a park system client in the western suburbs of Chicago. Uh, that had really extensive uh, Zumba, aerobics, yoga, and other programs. And um, what they're doing now is they're moving. They have moved most of those programs on online, and uh, and and they've made them inter- interactive. And uh, and probably in the future, as many as fifty percent of their programs are going to be online, as opposed to having to go to a place. And it makes me wonder if if that's something. Um, that that national national parks can consider too, where uh, where you could do programs online and uh, and they could become part of the digital educational component that a lot of kids get, whether it's through you know uh, their regular schools or homeschools. 
Um, any, 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 you know, of course, that goes back to the whole notion that you got to be technologically equipped to do that. And this particular suburb is, is fairly well off and fairly well resourced. But I don't know. No, so it, it, it's a good question. And so here's how I will start. We used to resist virtual visits because we want you to come here. And we don't want you to not come here, but think that you've been here just because you visited our website. Well, that's all changed now. And what we prefer right now today is that you don't come here and you do try to learn about the park with technology. So what we've, our, our education folks are pretty clever. They're very entrepreneurial. And even given the fact that we're not as technologically equipped as we'd like to be, we have some, you know, we have some uh, young rangers who are actually smarter than a lot of us older managers and we, we are doing a lot of virtual. We'll send a ranger out with a camera and they'll hike a trail and they'll, they'll do an interpretive walk and they'll make that file available on our website so that people can see and learn about the parks so that when the park is back available, they can come do that hike and see it for themselves. Uh, we've used a, um, you know, to, I, I think we've done some work with the leave no trace ethic we're trying to have our visitors uh, practice. So we learned from one of the Chicago area park organizations that one of the things they're promoting is hike as far as your bladder will let you. <laughs> In other words, you know, we don't have restrooms for you and we don't want you just scampering through the woods when the urge occurs. So respect the park and, you know, make a short visit and take care of that business before or after your, your trip. So, you know, in some of the, um, I've seen some signage from some of the Western parks that, that use very clever graphics. Uh, you know, the six foot distance is um, the wingspan of a bald eagle, you know, that kind of stuff where you, you, you try to, rather than have some masked medical professional wagging a finger at you saying you need to socially distance, you know, re- relate what that six feet means in terms of, uh, the uh, standing height of a grizzly bear. <laughs> I, you, you, you know, you actually hit on an interesting notion there too, where it's almost like, uh, you know, uh, Smokey the bear, wouldn't it be great if Smokey had a kind of a cheeky cousin uh, uh, who, uh, who was a, a bit of a wiseacre and, and would, um, you know, tell people how to behave in the woods and just the idea of a cartoon version of it might, uh, might actually get some uh, traction um, in, in the, in the video world. Um, you know, where they may have uh, sort of a, a Simpsons kind of attitude or, you know, something less than less than formal, like, you know, only you can prevent forest fires. Not that that was bad for its time, but I think in this time, things that are ironic or a little, uh, um, a little, little sharp, uh, uh, I think actually strike home better. Yeah, it's, it's been fun listening to the creative side of the folks I work with and, and the way they're trying to overcome the current situation. Um, and, you know, interestingly, the longer it goes, the more clever they're getting, of course. But now the um, people can see the, the light at the end of the tunnel a little bit. Although, as the saying goes, we're still in the tunnel. And um, how do we make this transition into our summer season, which is our, usually our busiest, providing a good quality experience while keeping people safe? With the recognition that life is dangerous beyond COVID-19. 
And so um, the most dangerous thing we all do every day is get in and out of a car. Well, that's true. I mean, there are 50,000 deaths a year um, by uh, automotive accidents. Um, so, uh, so, and we, I, I'm not going to get on the rabbit hole of comparing that directly, but, um, but it is, it is, uh, it is true. One, one thing that I, I think is kind of interesting too, is the, uh, uh, about the whole virtual thing is have, have you heard anything from your younger staff that maybe you can't get to, or you think is interesting or that, you know, you might try to get a foundation grant or something to pursue? Um, any sort of ways of reaching out, um, because I think this is a bigger change for them because they aren't as uh, as uh, as wired into life as it should be as 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 older older guys and gals are. Well, that's an interesting question. I'm I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. You know, one of the things what we you know we put most people on telework, and one of the things that we suggested they think about while they're trying to be productive is innovative ways to look for resources beyond, you know, our typical sources of federal funds or the, the classic partner funds. But I have not heard any success stories about someone who, you know, a, a new balloon popped up and they said, I never thought about going to here, but now I've succeeded. Well, that, that actually may be the, the route for some of the, uh, some of the best ideas would be that, um, you know, ordinary budgets are going to have a hard time in the next few years. And, and and I've made the prediction that I think we're going to see a lot more staycations in particular this summer because no one's got the money to go anywhere. And people are a little worried about how would they get there? Would they stay in hotels or, you know, that are clean right down to do they take a Clorox wipe out of the thing every time they pump gas? in uh, and, and, you know, uh, some of our Florida destinations, some of our some of our destinations like Florida and the Southeast, um, uh, have in the view of a lot of Midwesterners not taken this very seriously, so they don't necessarily feel as safe if they were to go there. So this could be uh, this could be your biggest summer ever, um, you know, in terms of accessibility. Kind of scary in that way. I, yeah, I think it. I think it will be. So. No, but that said, I think, you know, it was interesting. Um, you know, you're, you're online and windows pop up depending on like, apparently your Amazon shopping habits. But I, I started seeing, you know, the fashion industry has figured out face shields, right? So you start seeing po- ads pop up with these fancy hats with a plastic face shield built into them. And so we're, we're going to, as we learn new behaviors, we're also going to see the private sector develop products to facilitate getting back to some normal life. And so I could easily see uh, Marathon is going to have a dispenser of sanitizing wipes mounted on the gas pump that you wipe the handle down before you use it and after you use it. Uh, there's, you know, the, the people who invented the little plastic thing on your dog leash that holds the poop bags will will invent something that you will wear on your, your uh, Apple Watch wristband that will have a sanitizing ultraviolet light that you shine on something. I don't know. But I, I think the, um, the the innovative side of this, uh, it reminds me of uh, the packaging industry that changed after people, there were some um, shenanigans with people poisoning bottles of Tylenol on the shelf. And it, it changed the way products come off the shelf in the store, tamper-proof. So now we're going to be in the age of um, germ-proof. 
And uh, the, the germaphobes have been, you know, enabled now. They're, they're, <laughs> they're in charge. There, I told you. I told you so. Yeah. That, 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 is, that is true. And, and, and I do think we are going to see a lot more caution sort of woven into our everyday life, which I don't know that I like. I actually kind of, I hope it doesn't uh, devalue the idea of taking risks because risk-taking in general is, is, I think, what got us to, well, maybe that's not a good thing, got us to where we are. I think we're actually going to be less healthy for all this yeah. cleanliness. Well, and, and you know, it, it, we, as we look across sectors, I mean, the, <clears throat> the prevailing wisdom right now is is that uh, a lot of local restaurants will uh, will bite the dust, uh, locally owned ones, and as as a result, we're going to see much more of a of a franchise world out there um, of a of, you know, people who are buying into franchises uh, for food service because it comes with it a, a set of how to make it safe, uh, you know, directions on that. And that just in general, you know, things will will have to be certified at a higher level. L- last time we talked, um, the conversation ended with a uh, with how tourism um, uh, was kind of a new opportunity for you in the dunes. Um, and, and last time we talked, you were coming off of, you know, the, the record breaking year, uh, for the dunes with its name change, uh, to a national park. Um, uh, how, as, as tourism ramps up, have, have you, have, have you kind of lost that moment or do you think it'll still come back? Or do you think the value of being a national park and not a national lakeshore, which, you know, is the previous designation, is kind of is kind of you know there now and and you'll you'll get national park levels of flows. You mentioned the visitation at your visitor center, um, but I think technically, don't you draw like the tenth or fifteenth most busiest flow of any park in a in, in national park in the country? Yeah, you know, again, I, it's hard to count the numbers, but we think that we're at about three and a half million, which puts us in the top ten. And I think it's actually more than that because there's a lot of people who take a route between point A and point B through the park because it's pleasant. And that, in my mind, is a park visit. Yeah, we, we do that all the time. We go out to Michigan City. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and I'm a, we are all about the numbers. I think our tourism partners believe that their sector will come back fairly quickly here because we have, we're close to all those people you mentioned. And uh, it will hopefully be a fairly safe place to be because of the size of the spaces you can roam. Now, how will they spend their money in restaurants or hotels remains to be seen, but we're very happy from the perspective of summer's coming in. Um, for good or for bad, we should recover quickly here. Uh, hopefully it will be done in a way it's safe. Well, that <clears throat> that might actually be a be a good closing comment. What would you add to that as far as, you know, letting or letting us know what you think the the next, I guess, summer and fall are going to be like at the dunes? Yeah, I think you need, people need to pay attention to not only what the, their state governments and their public health officials are saying, but trust that they should behave responsibly. And just because the CDC says, oh, you don't have to wear a mask anymore, you might still wear a mask if you um, are in a part of the country where the numbers aren't quite uh, as on the, uh, the the downswing as they you're led to believe. So people need to be careful for the foreseeable future until there is a vaccine 
and treatments to minimize the mortality of this beast. You know, in some ways, when you think about the massive visitors you get, are are so many of your visitors um, from the Chicago area that when you're thinking about how should I behave, you should behave as if you would in Chicago? In other words, thinking about Chicago's current uh, disease load? or No, we... we um... We want you to come here and behave like your, uh, like your mama taught you. Pick up your trash, have a have a low impact, leave it better than you found it. And when I see pictures of Chicago beaches after a summer weekend with four foot thick piles of trash, we don't want that here. Yeah. It, and so, you know, it, that's that's what I would ask people to do. If that, we want you to respect this place. That 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 that's a that's that's a really valuable point. And um, and if any of that trash ends up in the water, of course you're going to get it because the way the uh, currents seem to flow. Um, Correct. But uh, uh, but, uh, but yeah, you get you get you get whatever Chicago puts in the water. But I I really do thank you uh, for for having this conversation today because I think it's I think it's you know useful to check in on how some of our you know our greatest national parks, uh, some of our you know coastal assets. Um, how they're how they're doing these days because these are uh, these are interesting days. Um, they're unusual and uh, and and it sounds like unlike some of the stories that we've heard about places that will have a hard time recovering, it sounds like uh, you're going to have uh, the opposite problem. Um, you might actually recover too well uh, because you're what's available for all these you know the 10 million people that live in metropolitan Chicago. No, that's well said. Uh, I, I'm. I'm worried that we're going to the demand will uh, exceed our ability to be safe at the same time. Yeah, more more bathrooms, more trash cans. Yeah, um, and of course there's no budget for either. Uh, thank, thanks very much, Paul. Uh, this has been another episode of Next Gen Waterfronts. Uh, I'm Dan Martin, um, uh, reporting from Chicago, and uh, back to uh, ASPN, American Shoreline Podcast Network. Mm-hmm.